Okay, today is July the 17th, July the 17th, and we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion, that being a moment of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can rely on Your strength and not our own feeble uh, abilities, if You can call them abilities. We thank You for this time that we can come and fellowship in Your Word, that we can learn and grow, prepare, so that we can be good and faithful servants. We pray that You will help us to focus and concentrate. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. On the way here, I was listening to KHCB radio. That is about the only station I get in my pickup truck because whenever I... Well, it's a long story. (laughs) Anyway, I just pretty well leave it on that station. and It's a pretty good station. Just like any other station, some things are really good, some things are not so good. But I heard something that is indicative of what we hear so often today. It was by a guy by the name of David Jeremiah. And I think David Jeremiah is a good communicator. But he said something that I simply do not agree with, and a lot of people have gotten off track because there is a battleground that every believer has to face. The battle, if you want to call it that, is that of ideology, and it centers around whether we can have assurance of our salvation based on God's promises or are they based on man's behavior? The quote that, uh, uh, just what he said, was that if there's a person that professes Christ, says he's a believer, but gets off track, shows no signs of life, that is spiritual life, for a number of years, then it is a sign that he never came to Christ to begin with. Uh, I don't know what he meant by coming to Christ. I assume that he means believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that I'm one of the communicators of God's Word that is somewhat paddling upstream because I make a very strong stand that you cannot tell if someone is a born-again believer by their behavior. There are a lot of people out there that are very moral from the outward behavior. Uh, They are very careful to live a life that we would say is exemplary, that would demonstrate that they are born-again believers. However, by what they say and by by what they believe would say to the contrary. We're talking about how many people are steeped in legalism, how many do not understand the doctrines of grace that are trying to work their way to heaven. There are scads of people that fall into that category that by their behavior would say certainly these would be believers. So there are others on the other side of the coin, believers, that you would not like to be even live next door to them. You wouldn't even like to have them as your neighbors, much less have them as a friend. 
And they are born-again believers because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no guarantee that when someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ that it follows automatically that their life is going to demonstrate that they are a believer. There are so many warnings throughout the whole New Testament. It is loaded with warnings not directed towards unbelievers that they are in danger of losing their salvation, nor is it directed towards um, people who profess to be Christians who are not. These warnings are directed towards born-again believers. And the warnings are that they can fall away from grace. The warnings are that they can forfeit a life with longevity that God will take them out before what He normally would because of their behavior. Now, there's some people that seem to live pretty long lives that you would think, if they're believers, why isn't God already instituting the sin unto death unto them? But that's not our business. If your mind ever goes that direction, just put it out. Don't even think about it because it's not your area of authority we're not even to think about such things because this is God's area. We are not to judge. The only people that we're supposed to judge is ourselves and our children. And outside of that, we leave it up to God. So the reason I'm saying all this is because we are in the middle of studying the five points of Calvinism, which is the points of Reformed theology. Sometimes we call them Calvinists. Not in a disparaging way. We just try to identify them by some uh, name. And they believe, they are very into telling if someone has, is, is elect or not based on their behavior. One of the main reasons is because the last point, uh, the P in TULIP, the last point of Calvinism is perseverance of the saints. So if a person doesn't persevere, and if you can't see it in their behavior, then they wouldn't say that they've lost their salvation. They would simply say, well, they never had it to begin with. Because if they did, they would persevere. And there's an article that I received in the Grace in Focus news magazine. This is put out by Dr. Bob Wilkin that illustrates this, but I'm not going to go into it right now because <clears throat> it has more to do with the irresistible grace aspect of TULIP. And when I get to there, I'll read that article. I have another article in this magazine. It happens to be the same magazine, Grace in Focus. It's another issue. And it has to do with the uh, perseverance of the saints, which is the last article. And so I'm always... I always have my ear to the ground, and I'm always looking for things that have to do especially with what I'm teaching at the particular time. This magazine also has an article that has to do with irresistible grace. So we have it to do with irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, and other things, but we'll get to that in time. Right now what we're focusing on is unconditional election. We've already looked at total depravity and the main distortion that many people have with regards to man being depraved is that they correlate total depravity with total inability. And that simply is not the case. 
We would subscribe to the idea that man is totally depraved in the sense that we can do nothing on our own effort, by our own merit, that would please God, that would cause God to treat us graciously or indeed to save us. It's all because of what He has done for us. Now, it's true that we are enabled as unbelievers to understand the gospel apart from His common grace. In other words, He makes the gospels clear to spiritually dead believers. And we've looked at that. That's an important aspect. One of the things that have gotten these uh, people off track is that they don't understand that doctrine of common grace where God the Holy Spirit acts as a human spirit that an unbeliever does not have so they can understand the spiritual content of the gospel. And with regards to unconditional election, we've also seen that there's a reason that God elected you and elected me, but it wasn't an arbitrary thing on His part. There was a reason for it. And we say that the reason that he elected us is not based on his sovereignty, which is what the Reformed theologists would say, but based on his foreknowledge. He saw through the corridors of time and knew something about you, even before the world was cre- by, before he created the world. And that something was he knew that you were going to accept the gospel because that is what he has set up. When we get into limited atonement, we'll see that God has limited atonement only in the sense that it is for those who accept the free gift of eternal life through believing the gospel. That's the only way it is limited. It's not limited to a certain number of people that has been chosen by God by some mystery of why or how he did it. It's based on his foreknowledge, and we'll get into that. I'm going to demonstrate to you. We're going to go to Scripture's. Boy, if if I can just get into limited atonement tonight, just the first page or two in this booklet, you're going to learn some things that are just so important for us to know. And it's going to help you broaden your horizons with regards to the grace of God and that He is not this person that has sovereignty above everything else and that He has created robots that have no free will and they are programmed to either accept Him or reject Him. Now, that's kind of a summary to pick up where we're going to uh, start tonight. And we are rebutting this idea of unconditional election, which is not conditioned upon anything in man's part as far as responding to the gospel. That is what they mean by unconditional election. And again, we would say that election, God elected those who are going to believe the gospel based on that fact, that they would respond to it. And that's what they say is not so. Now, one other thing I guess I ought to say before we get into where we're going to start tonight, and that is that the Bible is logical. It's reasonable. It's rational. So when you, come in, when you find something that just doesn't seem to fit, like it just doesn't seem logical to you, it doesn't seem reasonable, then chances are that it's not. Because you don't have to have a phenomenal mind. You don't have to have a great intellect or a high education to understand the Bible because it is rational and understandable. Keep that in mind as we go through some of the points. First point we start with tonight, and I'm reading from page 209 of What Love Is This? Dave Hunt, and he says, 
We surely would not expect the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, to withhold mercy from any who so desperately need it, much less that he would take pleasure in doing so. Now, doesn't that sound logical and rational to you? That if we have the Father of mercies and all comfort, he wouldn't hold mercy from someone, especially someone who desperately needed it. That, that doesn't sound like a merciful God. It just doesn't seem to fit. And yet, with regards to the Reformed theology, you are forced to come to that conclusion because God chose certain ones that he's going to elect for salvation and he gives them the grace to understand it. But though the vast numbers of them, he withholds that grace. He does not give them the uh, grace or even the opportunity to accept the gospel and you would just start automatically. We would say, well, wait a minute, how could a gracious, merciful God do that? Then on page 211 he says, the Bible, uh, in the Bible, predestination, when he says predestination, he has a slash election, is never unto salvation. Did you know that? I want you to mark that down in your mind again. In the Bible, predestination or election is never unto salvation. That's how most of the Calvinists would say that God elected some and others he didn't to salvation. He says, to the Calvinists, however, predestination is always and only unto salvation, a view which is imposed wrongly upon Scripture. In fact, election is always unto specific blessings that accompany salvation, but not to salvation itself. Bold statement, that is. Knowing who would believe the gospel is a valid reason for electing or predestinating those persons to certain blessing. But God's knowledge that he would extend irresistible grace to certain persons cannot be offered as a reason for doing so. Do you understand what he's saying there? What he's saying is if God, through his foreknowledge, knows ahead of time that someone is going, to, is going to accept the gospel, he says that is a valid or that is a reasonable, a valid reason for electing and predestinating people. Do you understand that? And does that sound logical to you? It does to me. It's in his foreknowledge. God knows everything. Time is nothing with him. And if he knew that you, as well as myself, at a point in time was going to accept the gospel, then he, would say, then he would say, okay, that is the one that I'm going to predestinate not to salvation but for special blessings. Those are the ones that I'm going to elect. That would be a valid reason. But he's saying that, that reasoning would not extend to irresistible grace to certain persons uh, cannot be offered uh, as a reason for doing so. In other words, you can't say that it would be reasonable for God to offer it to some and not to others and to give certain ones irresistible uh, grace. In other words, a person is going to be elect because God is going to give them the grace that is necessary for them to become believers. Electing, if, you are, if God is going to elect and choose based on that, then we have some real problems, don't we? We, we, we look at God and we think, wait a minute, 
that doesn't sound just. That doesn't sound merciful. Then on page 213 he says, God expects man to love his enemies and to do good to all. Calvin himself admits that God enjoins us to be merciful even to the unworthy. Yet, he has a lesser standard for himself. Does that, does that make sense? And it says, it goes on to say, How could it glorify God for him to be less gracious than he commands us to be? But wouldn't that be the case? God tells us to even love our enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Be loving, compassionate, and merciful. We are commanded to do that. And is it reasonable? Does it sound logical that that same God who commands us to do that would not would have, a, I guess you could say, a lesser standard to go by? How could we have awe and respect and love towards a God that requires more of us than He can come up with Himself? Again, it doesn't sound logical or reasonable. How could anyone say that God is showing mercy to those whom He predestinated to eternal torment. Remember, they don't have a choice in the matter. They were created totally depraved. They cannot even accept the gospel. God could grant them the grace that is necessary to be saved. In other words, Christ could have died for everyone on the cross, but not so. They say He only died for those that God chose to save. And the others are bound to the lake of fire for all eternity. And this comes from God's good pleasure. And He is glorified by this. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't register that way with me. Again, it's illogical. It's not reasonable. Paul argues that God has found all the world guilty. That's in Romans 3.19 and has concluded them all, both Jew and Gentile, in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. In other words, if they're all guilty, they all fall under the umbrella of God's grace. And do you know why? Why are they all guilty? Now, think about this. It's somewhat of a trick question. I don't want you to just come up rapidly in your mind. Again, all men, both Jew and Gentile, all men are guilty. All men are sinners. And God has concluded them all, both Jew and Gentile, in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all. Now, here's the, here's the thing that you have to bear in mind all the time. It's a, it's a principle that is as sure and constant as the law of gravity. And that is, condemnation must always precede salvation. So when all mankind, according to Romans 3.19, are considered uh, sinners and they're fallen, they, are, they, uh, they all are guilty in, in unbelief, because they are all guilty, then that means that God has the freedom to, what? Provide salvation for all of them. Now, I'm not going to go into this any deeper, but you should be able to make the connection here. How many of you are condemned for your personal sins? I didn't say punished. I said condemned. 
None of us are condemned for our personal sins. All of us, from time to time, are punished for our personal sins. But none of us are condemned for our personal sins because Christ took care of those on the cross. And it has the same thing to do with, in fact, all mankind. And what verse would you go to to demonstrate that? That is one of our memory verses. Uh, I know y'all hate this. Second Corinthians chapter five verse nineteen. For God was in Christ reconciling the what? The world to himself, not counting their sins, their trespasses against them, and giving us the word of reconciliation. So what does that tell us? That all mankind have been reconciled to God. What does that mean? From that verse, what can you, what can, what deduction can you come away with from that verse? Y'all need to see it. Y'all want to turn to it? Turn to it. Look at it. If you if you know it, you don't have to. Sorry about crunching on ice. I just. Can't hardly help myself. Okay, Second Corinthians five nineteen. For God was in Christ, that means that Christ was deity, reconciling the world to himself. Now here's where the 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 Calvinists, I'm not trying to pick on them, I'm just I know, I've talked to them, I've at length. And they have to insert words in there to hold their, their doctrine. They would say that God was in Christ reconciling the world of the elect. Because it, it can only be for the elect because Christ didn't die for the whole world. But it says reconciling the world to God, not counting their trespasses against them. You see that? If God cannot and will not count their trespasses against them, what do you have to be forced to conclude? Somebody had to pay for them then, right? Is there any way that God is going to allow any sins to pass without being judged? If he, if he allowed that, then toss your Bibles because God is not God. My Bible says that He is just and righteous, there's not a hint of injustice in him. He's not a God that shows partiality. Reconcile the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You know, I think sometimes we just need to make it simple. And someone is saying that <clears throat> there's unconditional election but it's not conditioned upon people receiving the gospel. And when we get to the next letter, the L, it would be even more pertinent. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And my Bible doesn't have in parentheses that is of the elect. It says, whosoever believeth in him. And you can, if you start trying to reduce a word and restrict a word like 
whosoever into meaning only a limited amount, then English no longer has any meaning, does it? Words lose their meaning when you try to do that. So what he's saying is, Paul argues that God has formed all, has, has found all the world guilty and has concluded them all, both Jew and Gentile, in unbelief that he may have mercy upon all. Unquestionably, the all who are guilty and in belief must be the whole world of sinners, Jews and Gentiles, all of whom are by nature rebels and in unbelief. These are the all upon which God is determined to have mercy. It could not be stated more clearly throughout Scripture that God has mercy that extends to all. And if you go to Romans, the first argument that Calvinists would make, well, Romans 9 says God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Is that limiting it? No, it's just saying that God's salvation is of His grace. It's not based on the demand of some creature, whether human or angelic. That's all it's saying. Now, those whom the omnipotent God has excluded from the access to life could be responsible for their doom and could be the beneficiaries of his infinite love, he says, is incomprehensible. Let me read that. I want you to hear that again. What he's saying, he's showing how this is, their, their theology is irrational. He said, how those whom the omnipotent God, God has excluded from access to life, that would be those that, he has not granted irresistible grace to those that he chose not to give it to. He said, how, how could they be responsible for their doom and could be the beneficiaries of his infinite love? To try to put all that together would be incomprehensible to us because it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It's irrational. He explains this. This is, I think... A Good illustration. He's, this is on page 216. He says, The situation is as if the ocean were filled with billions of people whom God has so decreed that they are totally depraved as far as swimming is concerned. They cannot swim a stroke. And He has thrown them into the ocean. God merciful, mercifully rescues a small fraction of them and leaves the rest to drown in eternal death. How could anyone with any sense of fairness say to those whom God created to drown and put in the ocean, it's your own fault? And yet that's what they do. Calvin has left the logic of Scripture behind when he tries to maintain that those whom God foreordains to eternal doom are themselves to blame for their fate. It is even more outrageous to suggest that they are the object of His love, mercy, and grace. How can they be? Because they cannot accept the gospel. Christ did not die for them. God doesn't extend His grace to them. How can anybody say that God loves them and is gracious and merciful? Here's some of the verses that he gives for mercy. He says, uh, Paul refers to, 
quote, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This is in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Would the very Father of mercies be any less merciful to all than He expects mankind to be? Doesn't sound reasonable. He says in response to my statement that the logical outcome of Calvinism is that God does not care if billions perish. Many Calvinists have objected strenuously. They say God could save everyone if he so desired. Then the God of Calvinism doesn't care that billions perish. If he did care, then he would rescue them by causing them to believe through irresistible grace. Isn't that true? Okay. We're getting close to being done with unconditional election. And when we get into limited atonement, and we're going to do that in just a bit, there are some things that are phenomenal that I can't wait to teach. But before we do, I want to add one more thing that he brings out in his book with regards to foreknowledge. See, I've always said that Calvinism is, is, is distorts the essence of God. Is God sovereign? Yes. He can do anything He desires to do as long as it harmonizes with His other attributes. But when you take any of God's attributes and you elevate it above the rest to where it no longer harmonizes with the rest, then you distorted the essence of God. Some people take the love uh, the love attribute, and they elevate it above everything. And to them, God is just an old softy up in heaven that just can't bring himself to uh, be just and to execute righteousness on the earth. And that's a distortion. But the sovereignty is just as bad because in God's sovereign will and his design and plan, Part of that, a very important part, was that he gave man free will. He had to in order to resolve the angelic conflict because that's what the angels had. And we deduce that Satan accused God of being unfair because when Satan used his free will to sin against God, Satan said, it's your fault. You gave me the free will. And Satan is essentially accusing God and imputing his character. And God is demonstrating that, yes, He gave free will, but man is responsible for his choices, not God. I mean, free will was, talk about a gift. What fun would life be if God pre-programs us and we're walking around, you know, just robots everywhere. We can't express ourselves. Sometimes I think about these people who um, are in bodies, their mind is sharp, but their bodies are just paralyzed, and they can't even talk or anything. Just think the prison you would be in, the horrible life that they have. It would be, I think, similar if we didn't have free will. Of course, I'm saying that from a person who has free will. If I didn't have free will, maybe I wouldn't miss it. I don't know. But when that component went into God's plan, then everything was up for grabs. Pandora's box was open. And yet our great God is still in control. That's how omniscient and omnipotent and all-wise our God is. 
That brings glory to Him. So let's look at foreknowledge for just a moment. For, by the way, let me say this. I've said this before. I want to put this in context. Most of you here, if not all of you, know about the divine decrees. The divine decrees, I'll just, I'll just explain it to you quickly in layman's terms. In eternity past, at some point, the Godhead had a powwow. And they had a, a, a limitless number of options as to what they wanted to do. But, of course, they were limited by doing the perfect thing since they're perfect. God's design and His plan is absolutely perfect. And in that perfect plan, God separated all of the things that would actually happen, which He decreed to happen because He knew ahead of time that it was going to happen, from all those things that could happen that won't happen. Now, can you imagine on this side, all the things that were going to happen is just a small fraction of all the things that could happen, right? I mean, even in our lives, we can go back in our memory banks and we can tell you a lot. We're looking hindsight. The older you get, the harder it is to remember all the things. But we can go back in our own life and tell you the things that happened. Well, God could do, could do that only not after the fact, but before the fact. Everything that's going to happen, He decreed it to happen. It's going to happen. Now, decreeing is not coercing. He didn't, he didn't cause anything to happen. His, his, and, and this knowledge with regards to the divine, de, uh, to the, uh, yeah, the divine decrees is called his foreknowledge. It is a, a subset of his omniscience. Omniscience knows everything, all the potential, all the possibilities, which is, can you imagine, each one of us probably could have married at least a dozen to a hundred different people and God could say, okay, you, whatever, whatever person you name that you could have gone with, that you could have married or whatever, he could tell you for a hundred generations what would have happened. <laughs> that staggers imagination. So he knows all of that. But his foreknowledge is limited only to what is actually going to happen. And he decreed it to happen. And in that decree, in eternity past, since he knew everything was going to happen, it was in his foreknowledge of knowing that it was going to happen. That's when he predestinated and chose, elected, and so forth, those that he knew was going to accept the gospel. Because everything with regards to fallen man hinges on the gospel. Where they're going to spend eternity depends on their response to the gospel. And he knows that. He knew it in eternity past. So what I'm telling you, all of these verbs, such as predestined, foreordained, elected, chosen, all of these things aren't pointing to His sovereignty that He can do anything He wants. It's pointing to His omniscience. Why did God even put any of this in the Bible? There was a time before I understood this, and a lot of credit goes to uh, my spiritual mentor, which was R.B. Theme Jr. at Baraka Church, that explained what I just told you, I learned from him. And he had his little gizmo, and he was showing circles and all these other things, and, and I understood it, and I am so appreciative of that. So it's not, this, it's not highlighting his sovereignty. It's, the only reason those, those things are in there is for us to understand 
how wise He is, how limitless His knowledge is. He wants us to know that, hey, this didn't just happen. It was foreordained in the divine decrees, and I elected folks because I knew ahead of time. Do you understand that's what it's highlighting? Not His sovereignty. If you understand that much, you're on the right track. You're going in the right direction. And what they do, they always say, oh, no, it's His sovereignty. No, it's His foreknowledge. That is what the whole thing is about. God wants us to know, this is how much I know. This is in my foreknowledge. And we can go to Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 29, and it'll explain it right there. Boom, 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 boom. It all starts, do you want to go there? Okay, go to Romans, everybody goes to Romans 8, 28, just go to the next verse. It all starts with his foreknowledge, not his sovereignty. In all of this, you won't see his sovereignty mentioned. We all know Romans 8, 28. And that's as far as most people go. We like to go deeper. Verse 29. For whom he what? For knew. You see, this, this is going to start a whole series of things that are built upon the pre- previous thing. But it starts with foreknowledge. For whom he foreknow, he foreknew, he also predestined. Did He predestine for them to be saved? No, it said to become conformed to the image of His Son. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, He also glorified. And where did it all start? With His foreknowledge. God wants us to know how smart He is. Now, I I hate to put it in those terms. I mean, when when you say smart and you are talking about God, it just seems like, well, uh, you know, the Titanic was like a rowboat or something. I mean, it just doesn't hardly cover it. But you, you get the gist of what I'm saying. And that's important for us to know. It's not, it's not, Highlighting his sovereignty that he can, that no one can even have a, a, a will to express. But I'm sorry, I got off a little bit there. We were given verses on, uh, with regards to. God being merciful to all, and that's when I kind of went off on that part about uh, foreknowledge. Well, I am in, mercy, uh, in, the, in the part of His foreknowledge, aren't I? That's what I just started. My page blew away, blew over, and I couldn't couldn't tell. So, the terms predestination and election are used interchangeably in Scripture. The basic meaning is the same to mark out beforehand for special purpose and blessing. That's what those mean. Predestination and election. But on what basis? In relation to mankind, 
The sole reason which is always given is what I just told you, foreknowledge. You have a question? Yes. Uh, the terms predestination and election are used interchangeably in Scripture. The basic meaning is the same. That is, to mark out beforehand for a special purpose and blessing. That's when we were foreordained, it wasn't that we were foreordained to be saved. We were foreordained for special blessing. So in relation to mankind, the sole reason which is always given for this election and predestination is God's foreknowledge. What, now here's the question, listen to this. What foreknowledge would cause God to mark out certain ones to be conformed to the image of His Son and to walk in obedience? We are not told directly by Scripture, but the implication is that God's foreknowledge concerned those whom He knew would believe the gospel and be saved. Now, he's, we're being as truthful he is, and I am too, along with him. This is a deduction. The Bible doesn't say that his foreknowledge is based on whom he knew would accept the gospel. But can you think of any other reason there may be that he, would, that he, would, that he foreknew, that, that, that he would elect those and choose those to be conformed to the image of God's Son? To me, that sounds rational, logical, reasonable. It's vital to realize that neither in these passages nor nowhere else does election or predestination refer to salvation, but always only to particular benefit. What must be borne in mind is the fact that predestination is, God, is not God predetermining from past ages who would and who would not be saved. Scripture does not teach that view. So if you're talking to a Calvinist, and you say, oh, well, the, yeah, the, God predestined some for heaven and some to hell. Oh, really? Where is that? Because the Bible never mentions predestination or election apart from it being special blessings from God. Because predestination and elect only, always, 100% of the time in the Bible refers to believers only, never to unbelievers. God never elect or chose anyone to be consigned to the lake of fire. He didn't choose that. He chose for certain ones to receive certain blessings. The reason that people wind up in the lake of fire is because they reject the free gift offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Not because of their sins, which most of the world believes. Nowhere are we told in Scripture that God predestined one man to be saved and another to be lost. Okay. That completes my rebuttal to the... Reformed theology idea of unconditional election. Okay. How much brain power do you have left? Huh? I know this is late in the day. What do I have here? Oh, that's my mic. Sometimes I put a toothpick up above my ear and I felt that and I thought it was a toothpick. 
Carrie doesn't like me to do that. Especially when I get behind the pulpit, I guess. Okay, limited atonement. Are y'all ready? Huh? Come on, let's let's. All right. Because what I'm going to give you, this is what I was looking forward to for a week. I'm just now getting to it, and we've only got about maybe ten minutes left. And I don't know. I don't want any of you to be wilting. All right. This is phenomenal. These two pages. Can you see these two? Can you see the writing I have in those? Can you see it? Well, you can't see it from there, but it's every color, and it's stars, and it's all kind of stuff. Okay, this is what, uh, oh, by the way, this um, Frank B. Beck is, when he wrote this, he was, where does it say, oh, yeah, written when, the pastor, when, when he was the pastor of Northeast Baptist Church in Milton, New York. So this is what he says, limited atonement. He says, Do you, my reader, believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of all men without exception? What say ye? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps many who read this will answer, yes. I then ask you, why are not all men without exception saved? You will probably reply, and I think you would agree with this, because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. Right? So he's talking to us. Now, here comes the trickery. But I say to you, if Christ died for the sins of all men, he died for their unbelief. For that is part of their sins, and they will be saved nevertheless. If Christ truly died for their sins, they will not need to die for them. Oh, now wait a minute. What is he saying here? Huh? Are you getting what he's saying? Do we believe that God, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world? Well, we just saw 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, right? But he's saying that if Christ died for all sins that he also died for the sin of unbelief. Now, did he or did he not die for the sin of unbelief? Because it says he died for all sins. Well, we're going to see that it would be irrational, illogical, and unreasonable for God to have Jesus Christ die for the very thing that he has made a condition upon receiving salvation. That wouldn't be logical, would it? So, if you want to be technical, when we say that Jesus Christ, we, we subscribe to the doctrine of unlimited atonement. But, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We do limit it, don't we? We don't say that unlimited atonement means that everybody's going to be saved because Christ died for everybody. And if everybody, Christ died for everybody's sins, they're not going to be held accountable for them, so everybody's saved. And we know everybody isn't saved. We mean that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's atonement is limited to only those who accept the gospel, don't we? Hmm? 
So they will turn that around on you and say, oh, you believe in limited atonement? Then everybody's going to be saved. No. But we don't say that. I mean, every time that we say that Christ died for the sins of all, we don't, number one, say, well, all the sins except for the sin of unbelief, even though that's true. And we don't say that Jesus Christ died for all mankind except for those who reject the gospel. But that's what we mean, isn't it? Christ's atonement is limited to those who believe the gospel. But not in the way that they mean it. There's a, there's a deep chasm between saying that Christ limited His atonement to those who are going to accept the gospel and on this side over here saying that Christ limited His atonement or God limited Christ's atonement only to those that He chose to save. You see, that's a big difference, isn't it? So both of us really believe in a form of limited atonement, but we certainly are not talking about the same thing. We believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world because that's what the Bible says. Okay, what he's trying to do is say that Christ did not die for those who reject the gospel. That's what he's trying to say. See? And there's a difference between unbelievers rejecting the gospel and being condemned thereby and Christ dying on the cross and receiving their condemnation. Christ did receive the condemnation of all unbelievers. That's what we mean with regards to unlimited atonement. But that's not to say that... What they're trying to say is that God limited Christ's atonement to where He did not die for those who reject the gospel. That's what they're saying. Okay, let me go on. That, that was just the first salvo there. The next, one, the next two are so juicy. <laughs> he says, um, again, he said, But I say to you, if Christ died for the sins of all men, He died for, the, for their unbelief, for that is part of their sins, and they will be saved nevertheless. If Christ truly died for their sins, they will not need to die for them. And we are explaining, oh, yes. They, in other words, no one dies, no one goes to the lake of fire because Christ did not pay for their sins. They go to the lake of fire for rejecting the free gift offer of salvation, eternal life, which he says was, he's trying to make a case that never was the case to begin with. He says, believing that Christ died for the sins of all men, without exception, you must believe that all men will be saved. Not so. I don't believe that. See, just because Christ was condemned for the sins of the whole world does not mean that the whole world has to be saved because they're ignoring the condition that they have to believe this first. If they don't believe it, they're standing on their own good works. They reject God's gift of the atonement. And then they're responsible. That's the sin. If you want to say there's an unforgivable sin, that is it. And I'm going to prove to you that unbelief is a sin. He says, he goes on to say, The Son of God tells us that many march to the broad way that leads to destruction. 
and that many will hear Christ say in that day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Christ could not have died for the sins of those who die in their sins. He comes out and says it right there. See, he's, he's, he, what he's doing is making a case. He's, he starts with a false premise of saying that if Christ died for the sins of all men without exception, then you must believe that all are saved. They, would, they also they, they use phrases like this, that if Christ died for the sins of all men, then his blood was spilt uselessly. It had no power. Because if it, if it did have the power, they would be saved. They, you see, they're creating straw men. They're making false uh, analogies there, things that doesn't even fit. Now, this is where I'm going to end, but boy, I wish I didn't. He says, Christ could not, have sin, could not have died for the sins of those who die in their sins. The last thing we're going to go tonight, hopefully will pique your interest for next time. Go in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verse 24. I hope I leave you th- uh, that you leave here thinking. They say, okay, you believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world? And then they falsely conclude that then the world would be, everyone would be saved. But then they would go here. Now look at this. Verse 24. This is Christ speaking. It's in red if you have a red-lettered edition. He says, I therefore... I said, therefore, to you. Now, he is speaking to the Pharisees. He is talking to unbelievers here. He said, I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Uh, Oh, but wait a minute. I thought Christ died for the sins of all mankind. That's what we believe. But he's talking about people dying in their sins. And the... Calvinists would point to this, uh uh-huh, well, what are you going to do about that? How can someone die in their sins if Christ died for the sins of the whole world? And that's where we're going to start next time. Okay? (laughs) Food for thought. I hope that will challenge you and that you'll think about it. We need to handle that verse. It's the only verse in the Bible that even, as far as I'm concerned, comes close to saying that people, and he's talking to unbelievers, uh, die in their sins. And we'll see what that's about next time. We're out of time tonight. Let's close. Father, thank you for your grace and your mighty word. We're so thankful that you are a God of love, mercy, grace, compassion. We pray that you will help us to hone our doctrinal skills so that we can stand firm for the faith and that you are a loving, forgiving God and that you did the ultimate on our behalf. We will help those who have bought the lies and are in darkness and would assail that love and mercy, not in order to argue or to win an argument, but in order to enlighten so that they can have the assurance based on your word and not their behavior. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.